Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. With every success comes more responsibility. With more responsibility comes more exposure. With more exposure comes more anxiety and more imposter feelings, if you like. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to author, business consultant, journalist, and psychotherapist Naomi Shragai. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they use to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. As a freelance journalist, Naomi has written for The Times and Guardian and since 2008 has been a regular contributor to The Financial Times, where she writes predominantly about the psychological aspects of working life. She's also appeared numerous times on Radio 4. Naomi's book, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life, was published by Penguin and came out in August. It's a book that describes how to thrive at work by leaving your emotional baggage behind. And this is something Naomi and I get into and we talk about uh, the various emotional states that can arise within the workplace and how often the way that we feel and react to certain situations and individuals in our work environments are often due to past experiences and trauma. So it's fascinating talking to Naomi about the book and her experiences as a business coach and psychotherapist. So without further ado, over to Naomi. Perfect. Very good to, to have you here. I, I wanted to kick things off uh, talking about when you're your first career as a stand-up comedian. Uh, I know we've we previously talked about that. This is a you came up with some very well-known comedians. Who was your who were your kind of comrades in arms at the time when you were doing stand-up? Oh, well, it was a wonderful time to be doing stand-up. It was the early 90s. So on the circuit, we still had Lee Evans. 
uh, Joe Brand, Harry Hill was regular. Okay. Um, Dylan Moran and Arnold O'Hannon had just arrived from Dublin. Quite okay. a few Irish comics were just on board. So it was a remarkable time to be doing stand-up. Bill Bailey was there uh, doing his musical routine. It wow. was a wonderful time to be on the circuit. And we could you see back then, a lot of the names that you just mentioned, could you see back then that they would go on to do really great things or were you kind of all at a similar level and you really didn't know what the future held in terms of who was going to be successful or not well there was just so much talent did i know they'd all be so successful i you there was so much talent at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could imagine they were all going to go places. What was most interesting at the time was seeing all these young Irish com- comics coming from Dublin, you know, one after the other. They were so funny and so talented. And, of course, they all went on to be super successful. Um, yeah, yeah. Could I see it? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm still seeing people who I met on the circuit back in the early 90s, still doing very interesting stuff today. So they stuck yeah. with it and have, you know, uh, done some interesting stuff. That's part of the key is just sticking sticking with it. Definitely, definitely. You know, and we, we, we all struggled. I write about this in my book, of course. I mm. had my bad nights. I write about that a lot because I had many bad nights. And I think, you know, there were a lot of talented people and, you know, a lot of funny people. But perhaps the most crucial thing for anyone is to get over rejection very quickly because it'll happen. Yeah. You'll have a bad night. And those people who succeeded are the people who just got back on their feet and back on the boards and did it again and again and got better with time. Yeah. So yeah. what what made you decide to stop? How, how long were you doing stand-up for? Probably doing for about three or four years. Okay. And uh, what made me, the reason I gave up at the end, it was so hard to give up. It was excruciating because I love comedy and I love the comedy circuit. So it was a very hard decision to make. But at the end of the day, I just couldn't leave the day job. I just couldn't make a living doing stand-up. And I had another few careers to choose from, and they weren't bad, and they were also good earners. I was a psychotherapist at the time, so I was doing psychotherapy during the day. In the morning, I was training to teach the Alexander Techniques. I was training. I was working as a therapist. And in the evenings, I was doing stand-up comedy. And when I couldn't get enough money on the weekends, I was doing children's entertainment and clowning. Oh, wow. So I had all that on the go at the same time. And to be honest, I couldn't keep it up. I tried and tried and tried to make comedy my main thing, but it didn't happen. So I had to let it go, painful as it was. Was it painful? It was painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very painful letting go of comedy. It was a big loss because it meant so much to me. Uh, and I, I I missed it for so long and still miss it. But I still love an opportunity to write a gag and do a routine. I try not to miss uh, an opportunity when I can. So I have to say I haven't given it up entirely. Oh, that's great. And do you yeah. think your your time as a comedian informed your work as a psychotherapist in any sense? I, you know, has it informed? That's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. In some ways, they seem such, you know, separate, very different things to do. But for me, comedy helped me to keep, you know, to keep light. And, you know, psychotherapy is a very intense experience. So I always felt it was always useful to be doing something else, something more creative, something more light, something more fun, that kind of 
and again, your theme being balance, that balance the intensity of psychotherapy. And that's why I enjoyed it. And that's why I enjoy doing it together. And now, obviously, you're working as you're an author. We'll obviously get onto the book, uh, Mm -hmm. coach, business consultant, and you're still obviously working as a psychotherapist. How have you managed to balance all of that in your life? Has, has it, have there been ebbs and flows over the years? Oh, sure. Of course. It doesn't happen without ebbs and flows. I mean, with me, balance is a big thing because I'm always juggling so many things. Uh, you know, I'm always, I always have, you know, at the moment, I'm, I'm currently, I'm an author. I've written a book. I'm also a freelance journalist, by the way. I've written for the Financial Times now for 10 years, also for the Times and the Guardian. So I've also done freelance journalism. So writing is a big theme in my life. And um, also my psychotherapy practice has moved to now I, uh, I pretty much do work psychotherapy. So I focus almost entirely on doing psychotherapy for work-related issues. Um, so I have that on the go, and uh, which so there's quite a lot that I'm doing at the same time. So balancing and juggling is always a part of my part of my life. And did you decide to hone in on fusing the work and experience you've done as a, as a psychotherapist with the, the business side of things as a result of clients that you'd seen over the years who were emotionally affected or you know had been detrimentally impacted by the experiences they'd had in the workplace? Well, that's right. I mean, if we go back, we can go back 10, 15 years, so quite a long time ago. I noticed that people were bringing more work-related issues to therapy. And that was interesting to me because traditionally people think about psychotherapy as a place to bring more personal issues, relationships, perhaps breakdowns or depression or illness. Or And suddenly I found more and more people were wanting to talk about work. Yeah. And uh, I, had a, I had an idea for a feature for the financial times, you know, uh, there were quite a lot of men coming along and they were struggling at work. And oftentimes at the peak of their career, they found themselves also with a young family. So here they were at the peak of their career, young children, oftentimes needing to move house or have an extension. All these pressures were coinciding, coinciding at the same time. So I had an idea to write a feature about fathers struggling to have it all. People were talking about mothers trying to find work-life balance, but I began to address the issue of men's work-life balance. And it touched a chord with readers and the paper invited me to stay. And I carried on writing features about working for a narcissistic boss and um, having difficult conversations, why people are terrified of delegating, control freaks, on and on it goes. And so I've been writing these features for the Financial Times for a number of years, about 10 years now. And uh, it touched a nerve with people because, you know, Financial Times, most people think about it as a fairly dry paper Mm, in terms of business reports. And at the time, the paper just wasn't writing about people's emotional lives, what was really going on for them at work. And that's what I wanted to write about. And readers reacted quite strongly. And suddenly I realized that there was a real need you know, people were struggling at work emotionally. They were really being so challenged. Um, and I wanted to write about this and, and also focus on this in my in my own work and practice. And then, of course, more recently, uh, Penguin has commissioned me to write a book on the topic. So it's kind of ex- the book is an extension of my work, my practice and my writing. 
Great. It's amazing, isn't it? How sort of only sometimes when you look back, you can kind of trace the steps to how you've got to a certain place in your career. But at the time when you're doing it, you don't necessarily know where something's going to lead to. You do it at born out of interest, curiosity and passion. And then you get to something, oh, that makes sense. That's why I did, you know, that's why I wrote these features and that led to this. And then now it's led to this point where, you know, you've wrote this, you've read this book, which has been published by Penguin. No, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, absolutely right to say that. I, I can't say I ever had a, a kind of been a plan or an ambition. Uh, it was really one one thing uh, led to another, really. So it was initially began with the stories my clients were telling me uh, that got me very interested. And then thinking this would be interesting for people to be reading about. And then the paper asked me to continue. And so on and on it develops. Um, but it, I certainly couldn't have imagined at the beginning that I would have my career would have taken this direction and that yeah. I would have written this book. Are there elements in the book that apply to your own profession as a psychotherapist? Well, there are elements. Of course there are. I, you know, I'm writing about people's working lives. So work is work, you know, whatever your work is. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about, one of my favorite topics in the book, if it's okay that I leap in a bit. Yeah. One of the things I talk about, uh, a lot is how people's, you know, sometimes their uh, experiences of in dysfunctional families or maybe even early traumas, some of the ways that they have been able to not so much overcome, how have they kind of defended themselves and protected themselves against early trauma or family dysfunction? Those particular strategies they employed are oftentimes behind people's success. So it's a way to look at, if you like, how early trauma or family dysfunction, that the skills we use to navigate them or survive them or overcome them are oftentimes not only inform people's uh, career direction, but actually are sometimes a secret behind why they're so successful. So for me personally, you know, I tell a story about myself in the book, which don't mind repeating if you'd like to. Yeah, please do. Please yeah. Do, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the story I tell about myself is that my both my parents were Holocaust survivors. So they were both, uh, they had both survived in Auschwitz and their parents and families were all gassed at Auschwitz. So I have this, if you like, le legacy I carry with me. And my, my mother was, and they were good people, but my mother was a very damaged woman. And of course you can understand why. Yeah. Um, everything she went through. And, you know, growing up, the only way I could really connect with her was, was to rescue her. You know, she was so damaged. So I kind of became almost like a rehabilitation therapist to her at a very young age, because I could see how damaged she was. And that was the only way I could approach her. So from an early, early age, I guess I learned that the way to connect with people was to help them. So I became a helper, you know, and I became somebody who really wanted to help people with damaged lives where I helped my mother. And of course, that that became my career. That became my career of choice. That's what I learned. That's what I knew. So that was the beginning. That's fascinating. Mm. And you touch upon this in the book, you talk about how people habitually confuse their professional present with their personal past. So would that be an example of that? Or are you referring more to particular traits, personality traits that arise in the workplace as a result of their past, but 
whereas in your case, you're aware of you know, why you sort of acted in a certain way, a lot of people are completely unaware of why they might behave or act in a certain way in the workplace or, or outside the workplace uh, due to whatever happened to them in their past because they might have even explored those areas. Mm, no, that's right. Well, I talk a lot about the book, and the book is primarily about how we confuse our personal past with our professional present. Yeah. And of course, most of the time, this happens unconsciously. You know, when we grow up, you know, we it's kind of our early family lives leave us with a sort of a blueprint or a template in our minds, and it informs how we perceive really all subsequent relationships. So it colors our perceptions, our earliest experiences. And of course, while we might be aware that our early family lives somewhat inform our more intimate relationships, we might think, oh, my girlfriend's just like my mother, or right, yeah, yeah, I can see that I married my father. So we might recognize that in our personal relationships, but we don't see how that plays a part in professional relationships. But of course they do all the time. Yeah. So in the workplace, what happens is, you know, everyone to a greater or lesser extent is acting out their personal or their internal dramas in the workplace um, because it informs how they perceive situations. And that's a lot of what I've been uh, writing about. Um, so, for example, shall I give you an example? Yeah, that please might do. Help? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's loads. I don't know where to begin. Of course, it happens all the time. Yeah. But, well, because very- I was thinking this is particularly re- relevant for the entertainment industry. I mean, I'm sure it's every workforce, but you know, I think this kind of thing pops up very regularly in the entertainment industry. As you can see from, you know, uh, the past few years, in, in just as specific examples within the Me Too movement, certain certain behavior patterns that, that might well have happened or occurred due to whether it be childhood trauma or un, unresolved issues, whether it's that or something else, it's something that seems to be quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. Are you so you're referring to a lot of the um, abuse and harassment in entertainment industry and the roots of that? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. In fact, I had written about that in some time. I'd written a piece about uh, what's behind the Me Too. In other words, who are these men who are harassing and abusing women in the entertainment industry, and why would someone put their you know, uh, their profession, everything at risk for a, basically a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I think that's a question that people should be asking. Unfortunately, it was what was interesting is not many people were interested in having this conversation then. Uh, perhaps they are more so now, two years after it all blew out and over. Um, but I think it's a really important question to ask. Who who are these men and why would they take these risks? And, and I think we have to understand that as well. Uh, of course, we need to make the workplace safe. Don't get me wrong. But I think we also have to ask ourselves these questions if we are really going to resolve this issue about um, harassment and in, in, in the workplace and entertainment. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, these men are... These are men who are so deeply harmed somewhere and they and struggle with such deep feelings of shame and, and they're desperate for a kind of affirmation for a woman really to, yeah, to, if you like, support the masculinity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they're craving for. And of course, uh, seeking out women in who are less powerful than them or women they have power over of course it's less likely that they'll be rejected is as simple as that you know they can't cope can't tolerate with 
rejection. That would just be too uh, overwhelming for somebody with such fragility and such insecurities about one's own masculinity. So they seek out people with less power who are less likely to reject them. And that's the pattern. That's one of the things I see. And does that type of personality trait tie in with what you talk about in the book uh, in terms of narcissistic personality? Uh, I don't know if these people are necessarily narcissistic personalities, but I can say something about narcissistic personalities if you want to go there. Um, Because I think it's also a term that uh, gets splashed out a lot these days. Yeah. You know, everybody, my ex-boyfriend's a narcissist, my boss is a narcissist, everybody's a narcissist. Of course, not everybody can be a narcissist except you. Yeah. But I mean, but I feel like because we're living in this in age, you know, the Instagram age where, uh, you know, we can make everything about us and it's all about likes, etc. It does lead to the whole idea of narcissism being a term that's banded about and sometimes accurately and other times not so much. But um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear, hear more on what your thoughts are on that. Well, um, yeah, I mean, narcissism is a very popular thing. Of course, Trump's made it hugely popular and people probably use the term much more than they ever had done. I think people get uh, narcissism very wrong. You know, narcissism is, uh, is kind of a trait if you like, but all of us have an element of narcissism. Um, We couldn't function without it. Narcissism is simply self-belief we have in ourselves. So, you know, without narcissism, we wouldn't have that capacity to put ourselves forward, to promote ourselves, to have ambitions, to achieve, you know, so it's equally a problem to be low on narcissism, if you like. So it's much more helpful to think of narcissism as uh, on a continuum. And, you know, on a healthier end, uh, it's quite a good trait. I mean, I don't think leaders can be without narcissism because they need to convince people to get behind them. Uh, They need to inspire people and excite people. So an element of narcissism is is really very healthy. So that'd be like the equivalent of being a productive narcissist rather than a pathological one. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Precisely. So, you know, productive narcissism, the the reason we call them productive is because they get things done. Mm. Uh, And, you know, they're oftentimes very intelligent. Uh, They're oftentimes very talented. Uh, And oftentimes they have the insight. So they know how to manage their selfishness. I think that's the key. Sometimes they're not selfish, but they know how to manage it. And, And they also know this. They know how to rein it in when they need to. So in other words, sometimes they need to think to themselves, I I better show a bit of compassion here because that's what leaders do. So I'll right. do that. But, so it's not necessarily see. because it, they feel that. They don't naturally feel that, that sort of feeling or degree of empathy or compassion. It's because they feel that's what they should do in order to come across as a sort of likable, normal human being at that time. Exactly. Exactly. Right, right. Okay, that's not a big trait. What we say is these are people who have a, a cognitive empathy. So they could, they're smart enough and they can imagine what, what they should be saying. Or they can imagine what people, you know, uh, that they need to show some empathy. 
because okay. it's good for business. Doesn't yes. mean they feel it. Doesn't mean they feel it. But at least they're smart enough to know when to rein it in. Yeah. To rein it in. Uh, and well, to that, show that, some empathy. Go on. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that sort of is very is varying slightly off uh, off piece, but it ties into a certain degree what I feel like some brands are doing at the moment with this terminology. I talked about this in a previous episode, uh wokeonomics where brands are piling in on certain social movements, not necessarily because they believe in those movements, whether it be Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ or, 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 any, or any of these things, but because it makes them come across as a more likable brand. And then as a result, they get a more loyal customer base and then that increases profits. That's right. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So I guess what you're describing is something similar to what I'm saying, that people can have a kind of cognitive empathy. They can think about how people might be feeling or what other people might be needing, but they don't feel it. And there's a, you know, there's this kind of significant difference. One is more for self-interest for me. And the, and the other way is of course, for the interest of others. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral whatever that means okay back to the chat what about in in situations in work where there might be fear of conflict but being fearful of of any appraisals that happen as a result so instead of voicing one's opinion you keep it to yourself i imagine there's certain workplaces that don't necessarily encourage transparency so in that type of environment what does one do to get past a fear of conflict, but also to perhaps try and change that environment? I think there's a lot to say in what you're asking. So let's kind of uh, unpick it a bit. You know, the first thing I think uh, people have to ask themselves is this kind of fear of conflict they have. Do they fear some external threat or an internal threat? Uh, so in other words, is the workplace actually a place where uh where it's uh any conflict is quite scary because of the potential fallout and where it might lead or is is the fear coming more or the threat coming more internally does somebody fear uh conflict because of their earlier experiences in life perhaps it came from a family you see where there was conflict might have led to say exclusion or rejection or withdrawal of love or even violence and abuse so for some people conflict has you know quite a you know kind of terrifying resonance where it could potentially lead um and they bring that to the workplace with them so any kind of dissenting opinions opposing views or conflict for them might feel terrifying because they're in their mind this is where conflict might lead so they have to differentiate whether the threat is actual or imagined does it come from the workplace itself? Is it really that terrifying to express conflict in this particular workplace? Or is the threat coming from oneself internally? If they identify it to be coming from a place, you know, internally, 
what would then be the next step to try and resolve that? Because based on that, it's probably something that's longstanding, like you said, based on past trauma or in terms of being raised in an environment that perhaps didn't uh, encourage conflict or expressing oneself what would be the next step then for somebody to try and figure that out and almost reconfigure and rewire that sort of fear of conflict mm-hmm. of course you know that's quite a process yeah but it's, it's a really crucial that, that's one. where someone like you comes in that's where somebody like me comes yeah. in that's right <laughs> You know, if, if, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be me, but it really does help uh, in the first instance uh, yeah. to talk to somebody to gain perspective. So, you know, talk to a colleague, an ally, you know, somebody you trust and, and check out your perspective. Uh, I, I talked to somebody yesterday. It was quite an interesting conversation uh, because this person had uh feared his boss and thought his boss was a really volatile and abusive man but when he talked to his colleagues they had a different take on him That's so they, said, well, they said well yeah he's a bit wacky he's a bit off the wall and he's quite eccentric but he's not a bad person you know we're not necessarily scared of him but this person i talked to was scared of him and he was scared of him because he was so fearful of his own father his father, in fact, was a volatile man and a violent man. So it's interesting how different people in that particular business in, interpreted their boss's eccentricity. Yeah. You know, for many, it was just quite fun and crazy and wacky. But for him, it felt quite dangerous. And that was because of his um, past experience. And once the penny dropped, was he then able to move past that? Once a penny dropped, he was able to move past that. He walked, he's just, and then, he strolled into his boss's office. Now you listen here. Sit down, Sonny. <laughs> well, we don't know how far he went. But the important thing was he wasn't scared anymore. He yeah. just wasn't scared anymore. So it was a, you know, it was a big success. So, you know, getting perspective and talking to people is a very good, uh, very good start. Yeah. Really. So, you know, if you're at the workplace and you feel things quite strongly, those are some of the questions you should be asking yourself. Is this actually going on? Is this mm-hmm. what's really happening? Or is this coming, is this coming from me? Um, and sometimes, not sometimes, but nearly always, uh, there's a mixture of both. When we react quite strongly to relationships and situations at work, there might be an element where it triggers something that's unresolved in us from our past or our early lives or our family uh, mixed in with something that's actually happened. So there's a lot to reflect on. And so I'm always encouraging people to think, basically, to mm. think and, and reflect more and try to get some clarity on what's happening. Because everyone sees things through a different lens. And we exactly. all we all have a different interpretation, but then you can get kind of Woody Allen with it and overly neurotic. Well, what, was it him? Was it me? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. What do you think? So it's a, there's sort of a fine balance between sort of questioning it, but not over questioning. Well, that's right. That's right. We do have to let things go. You know, everybody's coming to work yeah. with all of their you know, what I call it, everybody's Mishigas, that's sort of Jewish for their craziness. But everyone has their Mishigas and they're all coming to work and all this and everyone's bouncing off against each other. Yeah. And, and we all have to manage it all. So it's never going to be entirely clear. We certainly need a lot of tolerance. You know, we certainly have to appreciate that everybody's doing their best with the Mishigas they have, essentially. 
that's and, a good phrase uh, i feel like that should be a quote on a t-shirt <laughs> yeah, um i wanted to talk to you about imposter syndrome because it's something that's come up time and time again with different guests on the podcast and it seems to be a running theme first of all is imposter in, imposter syndrome something that you have suffered with uh, at any points in your career um you know as somebody that's essentially as you as you said from from the off you're somebody who helps others and are there ever times where you question that you know who am i to be giving this advice or 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 helping others in in this capacity and if so how have you got past it well you know everyone has insecurities of course i do i think every psychotherapist is thinking you know do i know what i'm talking about Right. And, you know, uh, because we're constantly met with situations we haven't been faced with and trying to help people make sense of them. Um, but, you know, when anyone steps into a new role, having and what's imposter syndrome is just self-doubt, really. So having doubts about how competent you are is perfectly normal. Everyone does it. You know, it's it really is only a problem if you can't shake it off, you know, okay. after months or years um, and it's also a problem if it starts to inform your decisions, your behavior, what you do. You turn down a promotion because you don't think you're up for it when you actually are. So, uh, again, does, that, does that tie into the idea like of um, sorry, does that does that tie into the idea then of, of imposter syndrome being a fear, not a failure, but of success? Well, I do talk about that in the book. I talk about how, um, well, just that, that the imposter syndrome is not necessarily a fear of failure, but can be a fear of success. Yeah. And what I mean about that is at some level, if, you know, people really kind of are honest with themselves and go to the back of their minds, you know, somewhere, failure gives you a kind of a get out clause. <laughs> and, you know, you think, well, if I fail, at least I don't have to do this. Yeah. So somewhere there's a relief in failure for many people too, uh, which I think it doesn't really get acknowledged because remember with every success comes more responsibility with more responsibility comes more exposure with more exposure comes more anxiety and more imposter feelings, if you like. So success brings with it more anxiety. You know, some people think, gosh, if I just reached this point, if I got this job, if I succeeded here, you know, I wouldn't have these feelings. And then they quite surprise themselves because the further they go, of course, the more anxious they become because, well, they're more exposed and they're constantly having to be in new roles and do things they haven't done before. And all of them makes that them that doubt themselves. So sometimes failure can be a relief. Sometimes failure can offer a get out clause. But there's one other thing, you know, if I can say a bit more about mm how the imposter syndrome can be about fear of success, really. You know, for some people, uh, funnily enough, it's true for Patrick Marber, who talked about this in a Guardian interview, you know, success for him meant um, having uh, having the success his father hadn't had. You know, his father wished to be a performer, a comedian, a playwright. He wished to be all the things that Patrick Marber was and, so success for Patrick Marber was a real mixed bag. He felt terrible guilt for having the things his father hadn't had. So it's the guilt sometimes of succeeding over one's parents um, that causes a lot of these feelings too. So somewhere there's a fear of success for many people. Do you think that 
with all these things that we've discussed and issues, you know, within the workplace is, does meditation play a part in helping deal with overwhelm and anxiety? Well, I don't talk about meditation in the book, but I am a big believer in meditation. Are you? Yeah. I've been meditating for 30 years more probably. So for me, meditation is so much part of my day. I can't imagine what life would be like without meditating, but I don't think I want to risk it and find out. <laughs> I think I'd rather just carry on. So I'm a big believer in meditation. Um, what type uh, of meditation I, do you do? Uh, I practice transcendental meditation. Okay. So it's 20 minutes, twice a day. It's dead easy. doesn't take a lot of planning. It's quite simple. And uh, it's been part of my life for so many years. I can't imagine not meditating. But I think, well, you know, meditation, I think the practice of meditation is much more preventative. You know, some people think, oh, I feel so stressed. I think I'll meditate. But it's better to have a regular meditation practice and keep your anxiety down and stress levels down at a manageable level, because then it will take more, uh, more stress to actually wind you up, if that makes sense. Uh, So it's better to practice daily, practice regularly, have a daily routine for alleviating stress. So when you're dealt with situations in life, you're not likely to react as strongly. Yeah, there's some some distance between uh, the emotional reaction and then reacting on that emotional reaction. Yeah, that's right. And how how have you found this past year or two years now? It's two years, isn't it? This I you know this whole cultural change of people now working from home. How do you think that's affected some of the issues that we've talked about now? Because it's now this is now what's I guess the equivalent of being the modern modern workplace environment, isn't it? This is not something that's just going to go away. Uh, this idea of of working remotely and there seems to be both pros and cons to this new work setup what are your thoughts on it well i think you know everybody's thinking and i agree that some hybrid solution is probably the way forward uh there's a lot of advantages of course for uh working remotely for so many people cutting out business travel primarily um but i think there's a cost to it as well uh uh, and i think people are starting to experience that already uh, they miss the face-to-face interactions, the spontaneity, the spontaneous conversations, the connections people make. It's very hard to maintain that on video. I think it worked initially quite well, but I think my experience is, you know, in those companies where people already had established relationships, then that could carry on or working virtually. But they already had relationships. They had already made those connections. Yeah. So if you like, they had some some reserve in the bank and that could take them quite a long way but that reserve would run out in six 12 months and then those connections start to wane i think and people actually have to you know physically connect and and be together so i think uh, of course i'm speaking generally and everybody has their own unique experiences um but i think that uh uh people do need that face-to-face, in the room, in the body, connections and relationships uh, in order to feel that work is worthwhile and that work is fun, you know, those those really positive aspects of work. Um, so we'll see how that, how that develops and where it grows. I think people will find 
different ways to connect and different ways to be close and different ways to collaborate and work together. Yeah. What do you do, Naomi? What's your what's your uh, recreational activities? I know we obviously we touched upon meditation. What what do you do outside of your work to relax and unwind? What do I do? I do uh, a lot of tennis. I play okay. a lot of tennis. Okay. And I do a lot of hill walking. So I like to be moving. I like to swim too. So I like to move. I find it difficult to relax and be still. I like to relax and move, swim, hill walking, tennis, anything where I'm moving and exercise. I feel, I feel good doing sport, being outdoors. Um, being outdoors feels great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's necessary, isn't it? I've um, I've been seeing a sleep coach recently for insomnia. And oh, wow. they're, they're talking about the importance of getting outside in natural daylight first thing in the morning and then and wow. trying to do it in the evening just to get our sort of circadian rhythm back to its sort of natural okay. natural source. But anyway, a slight, slight detail there. Um, and are there any books over the years that you have read that have had a big impact on you, either personally or professionally? Gosh, so many books. Oh, my goodness. I don't know where to begin. Well, professionally, uh, I've been very inspired and influenced by a, a Dutch writer and psychoanalyst, Manfred Kelsterbrees. But he was the man who really had put uh, psychoanalysis into business and organizations. Okay. Uh, but I really love his work because he makes it all so accessible to people, which is what I try to do, of course. You know, sometimes uh, I think psychotherapy and psychoanalysts can use a kind of a language which really uh, distance themselves from people. Um, but I like the way he talks to people. I like the way he writes. And he's been a big inspiration of mine. He actually, he's written, oh gosh, he's written out over 50 books. Can you imagine that? He's written over 50 books, wow. nearly a thousand articles. He's so prolific. So he's been a big inspiration of mine professionally. Okay. You know, personally, of course, I have my favorite writers, but professionally, he's he's really been a big influence on me. Okay, great. And uh, final question I want to ask you is, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Well, I think, you know, balance is everything uh, to me. What what does it mean? I, I can't imagine uh, not having balance. You know, another one of my professions, if you like, is teaching the Alexander Technique. And that is entirely about teaching people how to use their bodies in balance. Um, so how to maintain a postural balance. But of course, it's not all to do with postural balance, because of course, our postural balance affects our mental and emotional balance. Um, so uh, practicing that and teaching that always reminds me to come back to uh, a balance and how important balance is. Uh, so I have to think about balance in terms of body use, but I also have to think of balance in terms of my professional and personal life, um, and balance in terms of, um, um, my energy levels as well. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. And your book, the man who mistook his job for his life is out now. And where can, where else can people find out what you're up to and, uh, yeah, just sort of, um, Get, I guess get in touch if they're they're curious about what we've discussed today. 
Well, they can look at my website, naomishvagai.com, my upcoming events, my latest features and articles and podcasts and all my events will be on my webpage. Uh, They can also find many of my articles on fdfinancialtimes.com and uh, my books available, of course, on Amazon. Most booksellers is not difficult to find. Okay, fantastic. Great. Well, Naomi, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.